Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. been going through this book for such a long time and we're getting to those final moments where we're about to cross the finish line but there's still one major concept that we have to make sure that we get in order to fully grasp what the message of Hosea has been for such a long time and we're going to find this in Hosea chapter 3 this beautiful chapter. It's a very small chapter in Hosea. I believe it's the smallest one in the entire book. But it's so powerful because it reminds us of what the purpose is. We've gone through so much in this book by learning about the people of God and through the lens of Gomer, the, the, the wayward wife that was kind of just doing her own thing, stuck in sin, and, and still Hosea would come after her. And so after going through several chapters in the entire book, we come back to Hosea and Gomer in chapter 3. Last week we read verse 1, which says, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So right there we get to see what this whole book is all about. It's God trying to show his love to his people, but he's using Gomer and Hosea as the visual representation of this. In verse 2, this is what it says. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a latek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So that's the second part of this chapter. The first part was God's command. This is the command that I, I give you, Hosea. And what is Hosea to do? He is to love that woman of adultery, a woman that is in the arms of another man. He is to go and love her. Verse 2 and 3 is our second part and our second portion because it gives us the response. How do you respond to a difficult command that God ordains? God says, go love a prostitute. Go love a woman that is in love with another man and that is sleeping with another man. It's a rather difficult thing to do, yet we see in verse 2 the response to that command. It says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. So what is, what is it saying? What is it implying? Hosea listened to the word of God, understood the word of God, and though he may not have liked it, though he may have been questioning God in the deep part of his souls, even though the scripture doesn't tell us that, as a man, you would kind of ask yourself, really, God, do you really want me to go love this woman? And the answer is an obvious yes, because prior to that, God's saying, this is how I'm going to show I love my people. This is why this is important, because I need to show my people I love them even though they turn and go to other idols. And so Hosea does the beautiful 
thing of obedience, and he goes and buys his wife. We're going to get into that a little bit later today, but that's kind of the picture of what's going on here. But what I really want to grasp and really present this morning, and I don't want to leave this place without all of us understanding this global concept of redemption. We sang some of the songs, especially this last song that included Christ being our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer, and so therefore we have to understand what redemption is really all about, because that's the entire case of the book of Hosea. Understanding redemption will allow us to understand the magnitude of God's love and God's grace for his people and why he did what he did. Sometimes understanding the purpose will allow us to benefit and really enjoy this wonderful life of grace in God's presence. Sometimes understanding the purpose of why God does what he does allows us to come to church and really surrender. We've got to get rid of this concept of coming to church to, to meet some type of spiritual void that we have. It's not for our pleasure in a sense. It's for us to understand that we're in the arms of a loving Savior that has saved a sinner like ourselves. And in Hosea and Gomer's case, Gomer will be that re recipient of grace and love, and her life will be dramatically different. Three things I'm going to talk about as far as the doctrine of redemption. Three things are presented within Hosea, but also in the global scheme of what redemption is. One of the first things that redemption implies is there was an original state. There was a moment of perfection in a sense. There was a design for an object. If you look at a 55-inch LED screen, the purpose of that television screen is for it to hang in your living room wall and for you to be able to plug in a Roku device or an Apple, uh, an Apple TV and enjoy Netflix and enjoy your favorite television. It isn't designed to be put in the garbage can and just left there for someone to pick up, correct? No one would do so because that's not its intended design. And so therefore, we have to understand that there was a purpose for humanity's design, a purpose for people like you and me. There was an original way of, that God made us. And this state that God made us in, his people, was a state of perfection or a state of sinlessness. If you look back at Israel and this whole, this whole theme that goes through the Old Testament, Israel, after being a, a people enslaved, they were designed to be free. And God said, you are now free. You are going to go enjoy the land that I have created for you. This is what you've been designed to do. You were not designed to be conquered anymore. You were not designed to bow down to idols anymore. You were designed to live free and perfect away from all harm. However, we know the story, and that's not the case. However, this is the, the state that humanity is born into or was designed to be born into prior to the fall. St. Augustine called it like this. Pase pecare, pose non pecare. That's Latin for able to sin and able not to sin. That was the original design of humanity. Once again, we were able to sin and we were able not to sin. That was the beautiful free will that we had prior to Adam's sin. We were designed as a creation to be free. We were designed to have 
fellowship with God. You remember Adam speaking with God in the garden and, and going through the cool of the day in relationship with the God, their creator. That was the intended purpose. That was the design. They were free and they were fellowshipping with God. So what does redemption imply? There was something happened to that design and we have to be redeemed to that original state. Something happened that crept in, that destroyed or disrupted that design, and now we're called back to that design through redemption. So here's the issue. In our popular modern culture, it's a little bit different, and it's at odds with that concept. We're not, in our modern culture, expected to go back to that type of life or that type of original state, which Christianity, if you believe in the Bible, we will get there once more when, when Christ returns and we live in our glorified bodies and eternally with him in fellowship and finally free from sin. But modern culture and our current day tells us that we can dig ourselves out of the hole. It's, you're able to do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can perfect yourself. You can move upward. If you buy some self-motivation books at Barnes and Nobles, you can possibly get through your rut and get to that state of freedom or, or that state of perfection, if we want to call it that way. You can get there. Ultimately, you become your own savior. You can do it on your own. You don't need anybody. In, in, in our modern day culture, it's like, I don't need a man to get where I need to be. I don't need a woman to be where I want to be. It's that type of self-pushing and self-motivation that will get you to that next level in your life. We're digging ourselves out. And most importantly, what's at odds with modern culture and the Bible is that in modern culture, there is no sense of guilt. It's not my fault. It's not, it's not me. It, it, I was born this way, and, and I'm trying to get through. I'm pushing my way through. Redemption, however, the way the Bible presents it and the way we've been studying in Hosea, it implies a fallen state. It implies a state that is not popular. It brings the cause of that fallen state to your knees. In modern culture, we blame others. It's not my fault. My, my dad left me. My mom left me. It's other people's fault. We, we put the blame on other people, other sources. That's the, 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 the chaos that I was born into, and I got to work my way out of it. Well, in the Bible terminology, redemption implies that there is a fallen state and that it's our fault. It's our sin. It's our wayward ways. It's our guilt. And so in this fallen state, we are unfaithful to God. We are too deep into our, our, our disease of sin that the Bible itself calls us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, by nature, children of wrath. It's harsh. Only God can save us at this point in time in our lives. That's what the church exists for. It doesn't exist to, to gather up beautiful, perfect people, it exists to gather up those who are broken by sin that realize they need 
a Savior. All of us here have come to that realization, I hope, or at least are in that process of coming to, to terms with, I can't do this on my own. I can't redeem myself. I'm stuck in this way of sin in my life and nothing can get me through only by the power of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's, my friends, that's why I'm here. I can't expect to be the father I need to be or the husband I need to be in my own strength. Even though I read all the books I can about fatherhood and about being a good husband, I will still fail. I need Christ. I need his power and I need his love in my life. So this redemption is talking about this one aspect of bringing us back to that original state. That's why redemption is such an important theme in the book of Hosea. The other aspect, first aspect was there is this concept of original state. The second doctrine in this is that there was a fall. Original state was a state of that we could sin and we, and we were unable to sin and we could sin. And then the second state, Augustine calls it like this. Non pose, non pecare. This is the state of the fall, which means not able not to sin. There's a lot of use of double negatives here. However, this is Latin. And so what Augustine is saying is that in the fallen state, now the only thing we can do is sin. We aren't, we aren't able not to sin or we can't avoid sin because of our fallen state. So... That's what is implied in this concept of redemption. If you say you are a redeemed person, you've come to the realization that you've been saved from the fall. You've been saved from the chains of sin. You've been saved to a certain extent from something. You may not even know what it is, but you've understood, I've been saved. That's why Christians call themselves, I'm saved. That's why there's those bumper stickers from the 90s that say, I'm saved, I'm born again, on the back of, of their cars. And it's this concept that we've understood that we've fallen and we can't get up on our own. It's God saving his people because we have fallen so that deep into our sin. Modern theologians call this a state of total depravity, not that the person is completely depraved from all good, rather that the person in all aspects, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, is depraved from seeking after God. Others call it radical depravity, a sense of just being set apart from anything that's good. It's a total rebellion against God. And the danger is believing that religion can get you out. Most of us know people that, that some way or somehow they, they have a sense of religion. Some of them do go to church. Some of them have created their own religion, and that religion has kind of set standards of goodness to do. Do these things, be good to people, love people, serve people, give people money that need, uh, that, that need some money to eat, feed people, clothe people, visit people in the hospital, and we get a sense of religion that as long as we do what is good, then we can escape this concept of being completely radically against God in rebellion. 
and therefore we need not be redeemed because, once again, we have set the ways of redemption. We have made a way where there is no way. It's on us to get through. However, Jesus calls out the spiritual leaders of his day because they were dead in their religion. Look at what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 6. If you turn to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are beautiful. I hope you read the Sermon on the Mount. But in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, I'll read, I'll jump around a couple times. But in Matthew chapter 6, it starts off, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things what is this wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands is it not this a carpenter son of Mary and a brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not these sisters here with the, his sisters and they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his household. And he could not do and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he mar and they and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went among the villages teaching. What's going on here? Jesus was doing, Jesus was teaching, preaching, and the religious folk of his day could not understand it and did not realize where he got his power. And so Jesus himself retreated from that scene and from that scenario because the religious folk could not see Jesus. They saw a man teaching in a way much better than them, and the religion didn't allow it. We are the religious leaders. We are the ones that do better. In verse 14 of chapter 6, it talks about the death of John the Baptist, and it says in verse 15, But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I, ha whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Heroditus, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John the Baptist must be murdered and beheaded because he stood up to the king when the religious leaders of his day could not do so. Religion will hide you away in cowardness and not allow you to step up and confront sin. What's the issue here? Religion does not save. And friends, it has been a... a normalization and canonization of Christianity nowadays that we are turning into 21st century Roman Catholicism where we have become what our parents and our grandparents and our forefathers have done so to the Roman Catholic Church. We call ourselves Christians yet we don't know anything about Christianity. We go to church as a type of traditional thing and as a part of like, well, my parents went to church, my grandparents went to church, I have to go to church. And then little by little as we get older and wiser, we get into our 20-somethings and our 30-somethings and we make our own money, we have our own jobs and we have our own careers and we kind of say, well, I'll go to church with my parents on Christmas and on Easter and I think that's enough. That should be good. Every once in a while I'll go like during 
Valentine's Day to try to find myself a, a nice Christian girl. But other than that, it's turned into 21st century Roman Catholicism. And friends, let me tell you that if you come to church, it's not because you're saved. Church doesn't save you, and the act of coming to church doesn't imply that you've been redeemed. It can be just what the Pharisees did in Jesus' time. Doing Pharisee work, acting in a religious way, and still not being able to see Jesus and not being able to call out sin. So that's why we have a lot of people in church that, that have been labeled and, in, you know, sometimes incorrectly and sometimes harshly, but incorrectly named hypocrites or correctly named hypocrites because they're here on Sundays, but they're doing a lot of things that don't represent Christ throughout the week. It could be lifestyle choices. It could be the people that they're sleeping with that they shouldn't be sleeping with. It could be things that they're doing at work that do not represent kingdom culture or Christ-likeness because religion has crept in and has confused us to believe that we are saved by doing good works. However, we know that the Bible teaches us, especially the Apostle Paul, when he says in Romans chapter 14, this is one of the most difficult verses to comprehend. And once we get into the study of Romans, it's going to be, we're going to spend a lot of time on this. But Romans chapter 14 verse 23 says that anyone that does good apart from faith, that is sin. And you're like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Do good, and if you don't do it in the name of Christ, it's still a sin? What does that mean? And what Paul is saying, because our hearts are just naturally corrupt, that even when we do good things, it's a sin. And that's become fairly obvious in our modern culture, especially with Facebook and, and Instagram, where every time we do something good, we have to promote it. Every time we feed the homeless, we have to show all of our friends what we're doing. Every time Thanksgiving comes around, we, we go to the homeless shelters and we put it all over Facebook and Instagram and social media and we show the world how good people we are. Paul says, that's a sinful heart. That's a prideful heart. I'm not saying that that's bad if you do it. I'm saying sometimes if it's separate from faith, it becomes prideful and it becomes something of your ego. So we can't do good things apart from love. He repeats it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Love drives everything. And because love drives everything, love is a fruit of faith, as Paul says in Galatians. And if we are not in faith, we do not have love. And if we do not have love, then everything we do is out of our own natural corrupt heart. And you know, as well as I know, how bad of a person we can be. No one has to prove it to you. You know what you think. You know what you uh, conspire against. When someone cuts you off in traffic on a Monday morning on your way to work, you alone know what you say, what comes out of your mouths, or what type of hand gestures you do. So that's the essence of a fallen, corrupt state. The Bible is more clear about this state, especially when we get to Hosea chapter 3. This is why it's Hosea is one, it's become one of my favorite books, especially after digging into it for more than six months. Hosea implies this type of slave, slave concept in this book. And so what the fallen state does 
in the entire canon of the Bible is that it implies slavery. It's a concept of slavery that we find in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are three ways one becomes a slave. And it's going to be very important because when we finish off right now in, in chapter 3, we're going to realize what this is. Three ways a person can fall into slavery. The first way a person falls into slavery is that they are born into slavery. Their parents were slaves, and so their children become slaves because they're born into a household of slavery. The other way they could fall into slavery is by conquest. Another empire, another nation comes in and takes over the people and they, all of those people are now engrafted into slavery because they've been conquered and now they are slaves. If you just have in mind Israel and Egypt, that's what's going on here. And the third way a person in the Old Testament times becomes a slave is because of a debt. In Leviticus, the law, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 47, it explains that if you can't pay your debts, you become the slave of that person until you're able to pay off your debt. So those are three ways that the Bible speaks on slavery. Now, the spiritual correlations to slavery are heavy throughout the entire Bible. So much so that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is constantly speaking on slave, slave, slave to sin and slave of Christ. He always has this concept in mind because he understands what slavery has done. The spiritual correlation to this is, is, is incredible throughout all of Scripture. We are born slaves. Part one of slavery is being born a slave Spiritually, after Adam, we are all born as slaves. Just read what David says in Psalm chapter 51. You can go there, turn a couple of pages back to Psalm, and in the Old Testament, it says this in verse, chapter 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David himself realizes that I was born a sin. In sin, I was born a slave to sin. Ecclesiastes, if you can go with me to Ecclesiastes, Chapter 9, what does it say in chapter 9, verse 3? This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens under the, that the same event happens in all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. It's repeated time and time again. It's repeated in, in Romans chapter 5. It's repeated in, in 1 John chapter 3 and John chapter 15. This is the state of corruption that man is born into. We were born slaves to sin. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says we are slaves of sin. 
The second spiritual correlation that we find in, in being uh, slaves as far as being conquered is that sin has conquered our lives. Sin rules over the person up until that point that Christ enters that person's life. We've been conquered by sin, and Romans chapter 6, verse 20 says that we are now slaves to sin. Sin has conquered, sin has won, and sin it rules over our lives. Remember, apart from Christ. This is what needs to be understood prior to grasping the beauty of redemption. The final correlation that we find is that because of debt, uh, because we've incurred a lot of loans, the, the, the person would have to get into slavery to buy him way, his way out. They are debts, they have huge debts, and now they have to be slaves because of their debts. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, a famous verse that we all should know says the wages of sin is death. Sin has a price. And we are debts to sin. We are indebted to sin. We have to pay for sin. It has a great, grandiose price. Now, obviously, if you ask yourselves, are you able to pay for your sin? The price is too high. Why? Because Paul says the wages of sin is death. What's the price? Death. You and I are still alive. Something or someone had to pay for that debt, and we will get there in this final aspect of redemption. So what was the, the first aspect of redemption? The first aspect that we spoke about is that there is an original state of sinlessness. The second aspect is that that original state has been destroyed and now there is a fallen state that exists in its place. And thirdly, this is the beauty of the redemptive uh, understanding and, the, and knowing what the doctrine of redemption implies is that thirdly, Christ has redeemed us from that fallen state. Christ is our redeemer and Christ has redeemed his people. Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 says he is a ransom for many. He is the price. He is the redeemer. He is the ransom for our souls. We have been purchased for our, by, for our freedom. We have been purchased by Christ with this concept that grosses people out in our modern culture, but it is true. By his blood, we have been made clean. By his blood, we have been redeemed. He paid the price to set us free. If you are a Christian, if you have realized in, in mentally and spiritually that you are a debt to sin, but that you have been risen through Jesus Christ, that's what you're professing. That's what you're confessing. You're not confessing, I go to church on Sunday mornings, and that's what makes me a Christian. 
I give every once in a while to the church. That's what makes me a Christian. I, I, I do the Bible thing and the Bible study with some of the guys from church, and that's what makes me a Christian. No, that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is understanding that you were in a fallen state and you have been redeemed from that fallen state because Christ paid the price. You couldn't pay the price. I couldn't pay the price. Christ had to pay the price because we were indebted to sin. We were slaves of sin. And so that's what this whole purpose, concept of redemption is, is screaming here in Hosea chapter 3. He says, so I bought her. Did Gomer buy her way out? It was Hosea. And this is the beauty of the correlation in Hosea. In, in, in Isaiah 53, we get the plan of redemption by God ordaining and God decreeing his son, the suffering servant, to pay the price for his people. In Hosea, God is telling Hosea to purchase his wife back. Gomer, in this case, has fallen in to slavery. Do you remember the three ways a, a, a person falls into slavery? They're born a slave, and they could, they could be conquered a slave, or they have fallen into slavery because of their debts. After Hosea had, had been estranged with his wife, as we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, there was years of estrangement between the couple. The woman was no longer living at home with Hosea. She had to find her way to make money. And unfortunately, women in those days, one of the only ways to make money was slavery, and oftentimes slavery to prostitution. Some of them were converted into temple prostitutes in order to survive. This is what's going on here. Gomer has fallen into a state of slavery, and Hosea is buying her out. You got to remember this. Whose fault was it anyway? Who was the one that was acting, as we read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, acting the whore? Who was the one that was doing all the, all, all the sin? It was Gomer. Who was the one betraying her husband? Who was the one turning against her husband and going into the arms of other men? Gomer. Who's the one that's redeeming his wife? Hosea. Hosea is redeeming her and showing how he loves her. It's interesting. God says to Hosea, go and love your wife in verse 1, correct? That was a divine imperative that we read. Go and love your wife that is in love with another man or another man loves her. That's what, that's what is being said. She's sleeping with somebody else. Go love her. What does this go love translate to? Physical action of doing. How am I going to go love her? Hosea could have easily said, okay, God, I'll love her. And he could have written a note. And said, Gomer, I wish you were mine. I love you dearly. Have a good life. And put the stamp on the letter and mailed the letter to Gomer and said, hey, God, I loved her. I told her that I loved her. I wrote it down. I wrote her a beautiful poem. 
I sent her flowers and a teddy bear that says, I love you. It's up to her. She wants to come back now. No. Hosea puts feet under his love. And he goes and he buys her. Love implies action. He doesn't leave her in that state. Love doesn't allow you to leave the person fallen. If God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to just look at us and love us, it would be nothing. Christ had to act his part on the cross. He, Gomer, and, and Hosea, in this case, goes to Gomer, and he goes and loves her by paying a price. The Bible here is unclear of who he paid the price too. We don't know if it was her lover from verse 1. We don't know if it was the, uh, a, another uh, boss of prostitution in, the, in temple prostitution. We don't know who Hosea paid the price to. What we do know is that Hosea paid the price. He bought her out of slavery. We know this because they give us an exact price in verse 2. What's the exact price here? I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a, and a homer and a tech of barley. This is an exact price. And it also implies that Hosea didn't have enough money to buy her out because he only had 15 shekels of silver. If you combine both the shekels of silver and the kind that he had to, that he had to put together in order to buy his wife out, it accumulates to 30 shekels of silver. What does that mean? Well, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, 30 shekels of silver is the price for a slave. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 4, a female slave cost 30 shekels of silver. All of that slavery in Exodus and Leviticus would have to be ex uh, explained dramatically because right now you'd be like, oh my God, a female slave? What's going on here in the Bible? That's for another time. If we ever do Leviticus, we'll have to go through that. But that's the price that they placed on a slave and a female slave. Roughly translated to modern times, 180 bucks. That's the weight of silver. That's what it would accumulate to in our day. $180 to buy his wife back. And Hosea didn't have enough. So he had half of that. And he had to barter the rest or, or get the rest to pay her. In those days, it was terrible because slaves would be put on the auction block. You remember this in the life of Joseph and, and his brother selling him in slavery. They were placed on the auction block and they were naked on the auction block. That was served for people and slave owners to identify the, the, the person and to see if they were going to be fit for the job. You wanted to get yourself a strong man to, to be able to do the heavy lifting at work, at your house, to do what you needed to be done. You wanted to get yourself a beautiful woman in order to satisfy sexual needs and desires and have long life of doing so at home. So, Gomer is placed on the auction block and is being bid for. Can you imagine that? It, remember, they're not divorced. Hosea and Gomer have not gotten divorced, yet 
Gomer's lifestyle has placed her on the auction block of slavery. She stands there naked before all the men bidding for her, throwing money at her. And Hosea jumps in and saves her. And he pays the price and he takes her back. Hosea grabs his wife, saves his wife from the shame of being exposed to everyone. She can't hide. She can't, she can't cover herself. She is exposed. All of her filth is placed for everyone to see. And as soon as Hosea buys her, buys his wife, he brings her, and Hosea would then clothe her so that no one could see her shame anymore. This is Hosea buying his wife back. It wasn't Hosea's fault. It wasn't anyone else's fault but Gomer. And her sin and her lifestyle had gotten her to the lowest part of the food chain. She is now a slave exposed to everyone. But she had a husband that followed the Lord and loved her. Hosea loved her, bought her, and clothed her, and brought her home. Look at what verse 3 says. And I say to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is beautiful. Because he clothes her. He brings her back home where she belongs. But Hosea is very clear. This isn't a foolish infatuation. This isn't a love that is deteriorated by, by, by emotionalism or by love that is just lustful. We've seen that in many cases where we, where we, where, where we see an abusive relationship and the, the, the husband is abusing of the wife physically, emotionally, in all aspects, and, and the wife still stays at home being beat every day by her husband and being talked down abusively by her husband, and she's there just taking it, and she says, oh, it, 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 he was angry. Oh, it's just that he had a long day of work. And she puts up a million excuses of why she still has to be in that home suffering under those circumstances. This isn't that type of love. This isn't foolish love because Hosea clearly draws out parameter, parameters. I will love you, and I have bought you back, but now you're going to live in my home. You're going to be my wife, and you're going to stop playing the whore. You're going to stop your life of sin because that's what you've loved to do ever since we've met. This isn't going to fly anymore. God does the same thing in chapter 14. We, did, we, we went over this a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 14, God says, I am going to love them. I am going to go after them. But he puts a stop to their idol worship. In, in verses 7 through 8, he says, you will abandon your idols. Basically, he's saying the same thing that Hosea is telling Gomer. You're going to stop playing the whore to idols. 
You're going to stop committing adultery with idol worship. There are parameters in this marriage that you will have to abide to, and I will abide to them as well. You will live here as mine, and I will be yours. Remember what, the, what, what God names the child in chapter 2? Not my people. But then he says in, chap in chapter 14, you are my people. Now that you're back, now that you're with me, you are my wife. You no longer need to play the whore. You no longer need to seek for money elsewhere. You are with me. You are mine. But your sin has to stop. That is clear as day. When you come into this realization that Christ has saved you and you come into the church to understand that you are redeemed by Christ, there has to be clear parameters, my friends, that you cannot continue doing your sinful ways. You cannot keep living in sin and raise your hands on Sunday mornings. You can't live the life that you've led prior to Christ and then pretend that nothing is wrong on Sunday morning as you read your word. That doesn't fly because that's not what you've been designed to do. You've been bought from that. You are no longer indebted to that. What, what Hosea is doing here is he's buying the debt. She no longer needs to pay back her debt. She is free from that debt because Hosea has paid the price. And they're going to stay in the house for many days. And the Hebrew way of describing here is it's, it's an impressive thing. The way Hosea is going to purify his wife is not only by her stopping to be being a whore in front of everyone, but he will also restrain from having sexual relationship relations with his wife. In, in verse 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. That's what he's saying. Belonging to another man is implied a sexual relationship with another man, and so I will also be to you. What Hosea is saying is, I will stop having sexual relationships with you until you are completely restored. And verses five, 4 and 5, in a couple of weeks, they will be explained in that context. That's what's going on in verses 4 and 5. But there has to be a period of purification. There has to be a moment of, 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 and time where this is allowed to be purified and cleansed and washed so that Hosea and Gomer can enjoy finally a life of pure matrimony. If we are going to understand Hosea right, we have to understand redemption. We have to realize that you and I, my friends, were the ones standing at the auction block. You and I, my friends, were the ones standing naked before everyone. All of our sin, all of our shame was exposed to the entire world. It was us that stood there, and it was Christ that paid our ransom. We have to realize that we were created free, and to live and enjoy a life of freedom and spiritual freedom with God, even when the world was trying to buy us with, with money, power, and sex. Christ paid the price. Jesus entered the market, and he's the one that bid for our souls and paid the price with his 
blood. Through his blood, we have become his. And through his blood, we have become clothed again. Isaiah calls it robes of righteousness. We are no longer dressed in robes of sin and of wrath. We are dressed in, in robes of righteousness. We no longer belong to the world of sin and slavery. We belong to Christ. And now, the most important part. We are no longer slaves of sin. But Paul says in Romans 6, we are slaves of God. Friend, you're here because you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed from your sin. You don't have to keep living a life of sin because you are redeemed from sin and the chains of the enemy have been broken by the power of Jesus Christ. Let's stand up. Let's close our eyes and pray. Jesus, you have done the work and you have said it is finished. I didn't finish it. I could never complete it. But what you did on the cross for me, for us, for your church, was liberate us from bondage and has converted us into free slaves of God. Help us live a life of redemption. Help us live a life fully understanding, comprehending that we have been completely set free from this world of sin to live a life of purity before you. And until that day comes where you and all of your creation will live together freely in, glorified, in a glorified state where sin will no longer exist, Lord, until that day comes, we vow to live within your house, separated from sin. Heal every wounded heart this morning, every heart that has been destroyed by the effects of sin. Restore those hearts. Restore marriages. Restore love. Father, show us that you are a redeemer, and that you have given us the opportunity to express redemption to others. We do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.